The scripture today comes from the Gospel of Matthew, the 21st chapter. On this Palm Sunday, I invite you to listen for God's word as it comes to us from the Gospel. When they had come near Jerusalem and had reached Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village ahead of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say this, The Lord needs them, and he will send them immediately. This took place to fulfill what had been spoken through the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Look, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put their cloaks on them, and he sat on them. And a very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went ahead of him and that followed were shouting, Hosanna! To the son of David, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest heaven. When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in turmoil, asking, who is this? The crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Will you join me in prayer? Gracious and loving God, quiet now within us any voice but your own. And on this Palm Sunday at the beginning of Holy Week, speak to us through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. Do you remember watching sporting events before this whole virus thing took over? I got to tell you, if you're like me, I miss March Madness. Actually, uh, this year has completely redefined the term March Madness because of the COVID-19 virus that we're all dealing with. Maybe you remember the opening segment of that old ABC wide world of sports uh, that we used to watch many years ago. Images of athletes and teams from a variety of sports are displayed on the screen, and the announcer says something like, spanning the globe to bring you a constant variety of sport. And then he says, the thrill of victory. And there's video clips of all those celebrations of victories, the big wins, followed by the words, the agony of defeat, and with images of broken dreams and disappointed hopes. I especially remember there was a clip of a skier coming down a ski jump, falling off to the right side, crashing into the barrier at some ungodly speed. The thrill of victory and the agony of defeat, the human drama of athletic competition, I miss all of that. I miss the fact that we can't watch sports. It probably helps the fact that you're watching me right now. Nothing else to watch on television. 
This week, as we begin Holy Week on Palm Sunday, the drama, the human drama, is obviously much more than the athletic competition. We're all just a little more focused on the human drama these days than we are on sporting events. The real human drama is on display this week through the faith of the church. We remember the life, death, and the resurrection of our Lord. On Palm Sunday, we experience the thrill of victory. But by Friday, we recall the agony of defeat for Jesus and for his followers. Both realities interface and interact during this week. We begin on a triumphant note with Palm Sunday, with a royal parade and a window is kind of thrown open that allows us to see briefly something better and more beautiful than the way life is in this world. We see God riding into a new city and there are no tears, there's no suffering, there's no despair. Palm Sunday proclaims in the midst of the struggle of life, in the midst of the anguish and the denial and the forgetfulness, we can still have some wild anticipation. There's a vision of a new way, a glimpse of a new world that is coming. So Jesus enters the city of David as the chosen heir to the throne. But before the week is through, He'll be crucified with the words above his head, King of the Jews. A large crowd gathered in Jerusalem that day. They threw their cloaks upon the ground before him in palm branches. And Jesus directs the entire action in this scene. Specific instructions given to the disciples. It's the closest thing to a coronation that he's ever going to experience in this world. The world which he's made, the world in which he's about to suffer and die, and when he's finished directing on Palm Sunday, he becomes much more passive. For three years, Jesus lived and ministered in Galilee, but now faith demands that he goes to Jerusalem. For three years, he tried to hide his identity and his ministry to avoid confrontation. Now he's going into the very seats of power to challenge the way things were. For years, he enjoyed ministry by the Sea of Galilee, talking to great crowds, teaching them. Long walks with the disciples, interspersed with acts of kindness and healing, all that is now finished. And this is the turning point in the story. The Galilee days are over to fulfill his mission and his calling and to finish the work that he came to accomplish. Jesus leaves Galilee and he enters Jerusalem. You know, I think we like to omit the Jerusalem part of our faith. We prefer Galilee, where the crowds are always responsive and ministry is always successful and there's an abundance of resources. We forget and we want to forget that the ministry of Jesus includes Jerusalem, where the crowds are unpredictable and unreliable, 
where there's loneliness and betrayal and cruelty just lurking around every corner. The ministry of Jesus included both Galilee and Jerusalem, included times of success and times of betrayal and denial, times of ease and times of great strain. We've come to expect only the prosperity of our faith, never suffering or challenge or difficult choices. We've developed, I think, a Galilee kind of religion. However valuable that may be, it's only half of what Christian faith is all about. The triumphal celebration of Palm Sunday is the beginning of the end. For Jesus, there's no way around it. There's no way that he can stay away from the suffering that he has to experience. There's no detour available, no alternate road, no way to circumvent this destination. Jesus didn't turn away. He didn't turn aside. He marched onto the stage and right into the storm and into the darkness and towards the cross that was waiting for him there. And he marched triumphantly, although humbly. This Holy Week, we f- we'll watch once again this unfolding drama which begins with this coronation on Palm Sunday. The fact of the matter is, the way of the cross is no easy journey home. There are sacrifices to make and there are sufferings to willingly endure, even as our own, on behalf of others. Until the day comes when Jesus Christ triumphantly enters his reign in glory, there are injustices for us to confront and evils that we have to stare down and risks that we have to take if we're going to follow this Lord. Like the disciples, there'll be times when we too want to run from Jerusalem to Galilee where it's safe. But Jesus leads us onward to challenge the way things are for the way things should and still can be. We humans just seem to be hardwired to scan for risks. Somewhere in our brains, we're constantly gathering information, surveying the landscape for potential threats to our safety in a moment's notice. We can pump adrenaline into our bloodstreams in order to either fight or flight. We're not alone in this. I mean, the entire animal kingdom responds similarly. If maybe you think of a horse that got spooked by a loud noise, or maybe you've been surprised by a barking dog on the other side of some fence that you didn't see, you know how quickly we react to threat, fight or flight. As the crowds gathered for the processional into Jerusalem and the disciples gathered for a final meal with their Lord and the leaders and elders gathered to plot and plan and the prefect traveled to squash any possible rebellion as the drama is playing out every step, every turn in his humanity, Jesus saw the signs turn back, fight or flight. He chose neither. 
Instead, he continued to believe that God was able to deliver him. Despite all the evidence to the contrary, he continued to believe God was able to bring about salvation, redemption, a whole new beginning. I think we need to remember that just now. The circumstances of our lives these days just tend to evoke a fight-or-flight response from us. You know, in Mark's gospel, the chief priests look for authentic testimony and they find false witnesses. But in Matthew, they look for false witnesses and they end up with the truth. Matthew's gospel ends with the Great Commission. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. But here in the story of the passion of Christ, it's the nations that discover and uncover the truth. Disciples flee, and soldiers confess the truth of Christian faith. It's a paradox. The paradox of paradoxes. The Son of God, no longer in charge of his own life. The betrayer Judas has handed him over to the chief priests and elders. And the elders and the chief priests have handed him over to Pilate. And Pilate will hand him over to be crucified. And after his terse reply to to Pilate, you have said so. Jesus maintains his silence until the great cry of dereliction My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Betrayed and abandoned by everyone, he experiences the depth of human isolation and alienation. He dies with a lament on his lips, and yet still with faith in God, in an amazing dignity. The crucified God. You know, the more I reflect on this, the more I realize I can't explain it. I can only proclaim it. You know, more often than not, if you read obituaries, and maybe we're reading more of those these days, People will write something like this, passed peacefully, surrounded by their loving family. Well, that was not the obituary that the Gospel of Matthew writes for the death of Jesus. Jesus was utterly alone. He died violently, but with this majestic quality nonetheless. George Herbert captured it in his poem, The Sacrifice. And it begins with Jesus hanging on the cross, saying, O all ye who pass by, whose eyes and minds to worldly things are sharp, but to me blind, to me, who took eyes that I might you find, was ever grief like mine. And the scene, the scene could not be more ironic. On a level which they don't comprehend, the soldiers proclaim the truth of the gospel. 
The tragic one before whom they kneel in mock homage is the king of the Jews. And soon he will be their king. Indeed, as they kneel before him, they're already offering an authentic honoring, an act to be sure that they don't even understand. The deep irony of the whole trial, the mocking, the crucifixion scene is concentrated on the placard that's placed on the cross. It's intended as a coarse joke, but the reader knows it's profoundly true at a level that the participants in the story can't even imagine. Matthew emphasizes this by saying, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Transforming the insult into a Christian confession that even the executioners will acknowledge before the scene is over. You see, there there are times in our lives where we have to travel from Galilee to Jerusalem. When we too must go from being in control of our lives to having to let go of control of our lives and trust that though we're no longer able to influence events, God has not abandoned us. Despite the circumstances of our lives, When all hell is breaking out around us, can we then continue to believe in God's grace known to us in Jesus Christ? Can we then trust in God's unfolding providence in our lives? Here, the scriptures are fulfilled in the most surprising way. God is in control of the whole unfolding drama behind the curtain. Matthew's account, the characters of Judas and Peter, illustrate the failure of discipleship in grim detail. Judas stands for the utter failure, as Jesus himself predicts. He aligns himself with Jesus' opponents. He calls Jesus rabbi instead of Lord. Contrary to Jesus' own instructions, betrays his master with a kiss. Again, from George Herbert's The Sacrifice. Arise, arise they come, look how they run. Alas, what haste they make to be undone. How with their lanterns they do seek the sun. Was ever grief like mine? Peter, too, models failure in the story, but it's a different fate. Peter insists he'll never desert Jesus, ironically underscoring the enormity of his own eventual denial. And despite his bravado in the garden during Jesus's anguished prayer, Matthew plays out the denial of Peter in slow motion. Unlike the others, Peter doesn't flee at the moment he's arrested, but he follows Jesus at a distance. And at the very moment that Jesus is fearlessly confessing his identity before the high priest, Peter swears with an oath that he didn't even know Jesus. And even though his cowardly act is significant, Peter 
is restored to fellowship and discipleship. And the grief that he expresses in remembering Jesus' words to him signals that restoration. So here you've got Peter and Judas vividly illustrating two different responses to failure. One continues to align himself with Jesus' opposition and and despairs. The other is stricken with remorse and is reconciled. I mean, the whole story, it's the wrong Simon who carries the cross of Jesus. The one who should have been there, Simon Peter, wasn't. It was Simon the Cyrene. It's another indication that it's the nations that will respond to him. Just as the Magi came to pay homage to him in the very first chapter of Matthew's Gospel. You see, our lives are not simply at the mercy of powers beyond our control. There's a deeper mystery loose in the world, and it has the power to secure our lives and to set our world back on its axis. Thanks be to God who in Christ rides into our lives in the most surprising and unexpected ways. You know, we find life by losing it. We discover love by becoming loving. We see others not as threats, but as children of the same God. And we no longer find ourselves waiting for others to reach out to us. We become part of the outreach of the love of God for others in Jesus Christ. You see, we face adversity and we don't wish it was easier we wish we were better rather than fewer problems we pray for more skill and more determination and more courage to face the challenges before us so where are you in the story of salvation this week I've seen new things in the scriptures here and new things in my own life by reflecting on it. Maybe this week you can approach Easter differently too. Maybe you can find yourself in this story. Let the story of Christ's passion, his death, and his resurrection just seep into your life this week. And celebrate because the grace of Almighty God has finally arrived. Thanks be to God. Amen.